What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listener, to chapter 172 of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, The Secret Rulers of the World episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokitansky, Julian Field, and Travis View. This week, we got a chance to sit down with John Ronson, who has been studying conspiracy theories and a variety of other esoteric topics that are right up our alley for the last three decades. He's the author of books like The Men Who Stare at Goats and Them, Adventures with Extremists. He's also made documentary series like The Secret Rulers of the world, which saw Ronson infiltrating Bohemian Grove on the same day that Alex Jones did and covering the now infamous conspiracy theorist in his early days. John Ronson's latest work is a Radio 4 and BBC Sounds podcast series entitled Things Fell Apart. It covers, among other things, Satanic Panic and QAnon, so, you know, and specifically Cappy. So, yeah, I thought this was a really fascinating sit-down. Let's jump right into it. Interview with John Ronson. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Julian. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice to be here. Nice to see you all. We're very excited to speak with you today uh, because you've been covering a very similar beat to our show, but for way longer. I mean, famously, you spent time with Alex Jones in the 90s when you were filming the multi-part series Secret Rulers of the World, and you ended up trespassing into Bohemian Grove. Uh, If I understand correctly, by the way, you you walked through the front just saying, Hey, I'm rich. I'm supposed to be here. And Alex was waiting through the woods, like, you know. Like the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So anyways, yes. Um, that is exactly what happened. So so when we went to the town, uh, what was the name of the town? Monterio or Occidental? I think the town was Occidental. That's where we mm-hmm. were staying. Uh, this is north of Napa. And we met a local lawyer who told us that if we wanted to sneak into the grove, which he had himself done, then the way to do it would be to go to the local Eddie Bauer preppy yes. clothes store and <laughs> dress preppy and yeah. just walk up the drive, giving the security guard to kind of eye roll the world wave. So, yeah, that's how I got in. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, thank you. Thank you so much, by the way, for stopping Alex bringing a gun in. That that could have been <laughs> so much worse. And I just remember your voice just quietly being like, well, maybe. Maybe, you know, maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Also, I said to Alex, like, have you got a uh, contingency plan in case you're caught? And he said, yes, I, I do. And I said, well, what is it? He said, well, if anybody, you know, if I'm caught, I'm going to say to them, don't, <laughs> don't come any closer. Oh, man. That, that <laughs> was was like, if that's your contingency plan, are you going to say, don't come any closer? But, you know, so he ends up at like the cremation of care play and you're yeah. there as well. He has a camera in his bag. So anyways, you know, obviously your work is 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 legendary and I really enjoy uh, a variety of different things you've made, you know, from from your shows to your books to the documentary stuff. But, but before we get into kind of more contemporary stuff, I, I did want to ask you what your impressions of that period mid to late 90s and and kind of Alex just in retrospect oh sure um well um he he was different to how he is now there was less malevolence I when I first started saying that I said it slightly hesitantly because I wasn't certain it's not like I've I've watched every uh, episode of Infowars you know from the mid 90s on but that was certainly my impression and in the subsequent years people who know a lot about Alex I always check with them I say is this true like the Alex Jones of the 90s felt a less malevolent figure than the Alex of today and and it's always confirmed to me Uh, so he was he was 26 years old his girlfriend um, Violet 
stroke Kelly, she went by both names, said uh, that he's the new sensation, like he's going to be the biggest thing in conspiracy broadcasting. At the time, this was just in a little suburban house somewhere in Austin. Um, But at the same time, but I didn't doubt her. The conspiracy, uh, you know, broadcasters at the time were by and large uncharismatic, dull, yet really popular. Like the the VHS tables at the gun shows were always very busy. So looking back now, it seemed obvious that there was a great deal of demand for a charismatic conspiracy talk show host. The closest they had at the time was Art Bell. But Mm -hmm. he was kind of... You know, he was a little more cautious, a bit more sceptical, whereas Alex, of course, was balls out. Like, even though, even decades before, he started doing really malevolent things like hounding the parents of children killed in school shootings, he was still very eloquent with his Mayan and Aztec this and that. But the stuff he was upset and angry about back then was more reasonable stuff, like Waco, Ruby Ridge... Um, even even Oklahoma City bombing, I don't think you'd need to be insane to think, well, you know, maybe it's worth looking at whether they missed, whether the government missed things, for instance. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I think that that footage, too, you know, shows Alex Jones expressing genuine love for another person, which is something I have never seen uh, captured on tape afterwards. That's right. Yeah, he was very <laughs> proud of, of, of Violet. He called her, you know, he says, you're so beautiful. You're the web, this is the webmaster of Infowars.com. He was so proud of her. Contrast that with the photo of him standing in his underwear in front of the fridge uh, where you can see his butt crack and he's trying to get food in the middle of the night and his child is posting it on TikTok. I think, you know, I mean, he kind of did the conservative arc. Divorce is always the end and bitterness and anger. Yeah, well, and also I've got to say narcissism. Um, When I went to to Alex's um, custody hearing, it came out that he had a diagnosis of narcissistic disorder. And I really do think that that that's the solution to an awful lot of mysteries, not just with Alex Jones, but with a lot of leading Q people and so on. It, It just it makes so much sense when you look at the narcissism checklist as to why somebody would then become a big um, peddler of alternative ideas. One of your approaches in Secret Rulers of the World is to basically kind of embed yourself with people who are, you know, kind of conspiracy theory minded, and then go and investigate what they want to investigate. So, you know, in the case of Alex, it was Bohemian Grove, but you also went to, like, try to investigate the Bilderberg Group. Uh, So, I kind of have a question about, you know, these kinds of entities like the Bilderberg Group or the type of people who are members of Bohemian Grove. I mean, you're definitely dealing with entrenched power. So what would you say the trick is when you're studying these kinds of institutions that are quite malevolent or can be in the context of conspiracy theories? Like, is it possible to avoid ending up, quote unquote, defending them? Sure. Well, I think the best method is to is to just lose yourself, just, just become a... Uh, I, I deliberately didn't um, research the Bilderberg Group before I went to Portugal to try try and infiltrate them. It, it was it was a deliberate decision because I thought, I don't want to solve this mystery before I have the adventure. I just want to be a twig in the in the river of this story, going wherever the story takes me. And I'm I'm so pleased. I I mean I should say that that decision at the time was probably in part based on laziness. Like I didn't want to <laughs> spend that ages researching something. But I'm very glad I made that decision because it meant that the excitement, the not knowing what's going to happen next just becomes a a very sort of pleasant part of the storytelling. Um, 
And then your job, I suppose, is to try and see it through the eyes of the conspiracy theorists, to try and lose yourself in the the maze of the story and really not worry about rationality until you get back home and you've got all the material and that's when you start to pass through it all, thinking, well, what? How am I going to tell the story? And always, because I'm a rationalist, I'm always going to tell the story from a rationalist perspective. But when I'm when I'm on the adventure itself, I, um, I, I'm not trying to be rational. Then I, I just want to be a sponge. And but just in relation to these larger institutions, you know, once you look into them, yeah. h- how do you how do, how does that kind of compare and contrast work? So that you know, if the Bilderberg Group is brought up in your movie, you you still kind of do justice to you know people who who do see them, I guess, as as potentially malevolent, but maybe not Illuminati baby eaters. Well, with the Bilderberg Group, it was actually quite easy because the way that they see themselves isn't a million miles away from the way that some of the conspiracy theorists see them. Uh, right. They were set up in 1954 as a response to the Second World War. They thought, now what I'm about to say sounds foolish now, but maybe it didn't sound foolish then, uh, which was that we want to take power away from politicians because look what happens when you have an, ideal, an ideologue as, a, as the leader of a country. We want to thwart future Hitlers. What's the safest way of doing that? We'll, we'll try and move power from politics to business. Uh, so the purpose of the Bilderberg Group, in their words, was to invite up-and-coming politicians like Bill Clinton, Margaret Thatcher. They had a lot of success. I'd introduce them to globalist-minded business leaders in the hope that they could offer them some wise, sensible words. So I think that right. that is what the Bilderberg Group is. And it's that's right. not a million miles away from how conspiracy theorists see them. Yeah. Yeah. Globalists who want to install essentially a one world government like that is that's what's so interesting sometimes about Alex is like you get this core and you're like, well, that's like you said, you can interview them directly. You know, our Alex or some of these conspiracy theorists could find out much more just sitting down with these people and asking them, hey, what what are your intentions? And they actually do fit in with the fears often. But yes, sometimes they do. Uh, Lord Healy, who was one of the head of one of the earliest members of the Bilderberg Steering Committee, said to me the the idea that we were trying to implement a one world government is exciting exaggerated but not wholly unfair uh, right so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of the oddest things about Alex and, I, and maybe this is to do with narcissism is that what we witnessed at Bohemian Grove um, by the way you mentioned my secret rulers of the world documentary but in the documentary I didn't really talk about me going into the grove I concentrated it all on Alex but in my book them I talk much more about what I saw when, when we were inside the grove um, but yeah the thing that's most baffling to me about that night was what we saw was really a fucking nuts and b extremely interesting and yet that you know <laughs> that wasn't enough For, you know there's a phrase in Judaism uh, Dianu, which means that that is sufficient. Like for me, what I saw at Bohemian Grove was was Dianu. But for Alex, he wanted to to, to put a whole, um, you know, just slap a whole load of lies on top of it. Like, why wasn't it enough 
that we saw this extraordinary ritual that was just absurd. You know, why did Alex have to pretend that we might have witnessed an actual human sacrifice? Like, why wasn't the truth enough? Yeah, you kind of mentioned there's, there was a, like an orchestra, you know, there was an orchestra. This was a, a play. They had pyrotechnics, you know, stage directions and stuff. Yeah. Um, if you're going to do a human sacrifice, you don't invite the San Francisco Symphony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, at least you maybe like smudge that line <laughs> in the script where it says, you know, take the baby and now, you know, sacrifice it. Right. Yeah. I want to say that, yeah, I feel the same sort of interesting kind of uh, frustration with conspiracy theorists whenever reporting about the, their beliefs or trying to look into their, their worldview. I mean, I thought a lot about this with like Epstein, with, uh, with the Epstein case, which is a, just a ludicrous, horrifying story about power and money and, and science and fame and, and you know, the, the top. 0.1% of society all getting together. Um, so there's lots of horrifying things that you could dive into with the, with the Epstein story. But w the QAnon people, they kept adding on extra things, like the belief that um, that uh, that Epstein Island had many uh, underground layers, which uh, in which uh, you know children were sacrificed and eaten, which you know which there's simply no evidence for. That's not a defense of anyone. That's just it's just a fact that <laughs> that no one has ever provided this kind of evidence. Right. So um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my always goal, I'm sure yours, as like, I always want to try and give it to uh, the conspiracy theorists whenever they get something kind of right or whenever they're sort of like have a point. But it's like, it's, uh, you're, it's so frustrating that they add so many extra sort of exciting lies on top of what is already a worthwhile story to tell. It's so odd. Uh, I think narcissism must have something to do with it because you, you, you know, part of that is wanting to be the smartest person in the room and to have, you know, special knowledge that other people don't have. So I guess that's why Alex felt that he couldn't leave Bohemian Grove with the same knowledge that I had. But by the time, but you know, by the time we got back to the motel that night, he was already starting to, to spin lies into the truth. I remember him saying that he overheard two men saying... Um, you know, walking along the path in this redwood forest saying, you know, yeah, we're going to get him elected. <laughs> and I said, you know, yeah. Alex, that's exactly what you would like to have overheard at Bohemian Grove, mm -hmm. two men plotting the election of someone. It's much more likely they're talking about the board of some company right. anyways. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if, if he really did overhear that, I'm sure they weren't talking about the president. So I wanted to dive into something that really is at the intersection of all of these things. On your new BBC uh, radio show, Things Fell Apart, one of the episodes is dedicated to actor Isaac Cappy, which is, you know, a martyr-like figure in the QAnon community. And I have to say, your work was really illuminating. Even for people like us who've been studying nonstop, you got access and, and you know, had interviews with the man's family and friends and kind of compared that and, and went deeper on, you know, things like the night of his death and, and how, you know, Lynn Wood came in. So I wanted to definitely go over a lot of that with you. Sure. Um, but first, you know, how did you kind of come to focus in on Cappy? Because you could have done any other number of stories around QAnon. Yeah, um, I think it was the Hollywood connection um, that first interested me. I, because I'd noticed that the, there was a few leading QAnon people who had been in Hollywood. There was that guy, Neon Revolt, as well. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, who turned out oh, to be... Oh, we're familiar because he dubbed Travis Tapwater Goblin. Or no, Tapwater... 
What is it? Yeah, yeah, Tapwater Goblin. Yeah, he called tap me water Tapwater Goblin. That's Tapwater Travis. He also called me Rat Tail Travis. He was he was an early fan of mine. <laughs> he he put him in a Q-Man centipede in which he was, um, I guess, just one in a chain of, of different journalists eating and, you know, well, you know how the centipede works. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, so sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, so um, I should say, by the way, that the show, Things Fell Apart, it's right as we speak, it's only on the BBC, but by the end of January, it will be everywhere where all podcasts are so people will be able to hear it but um it's fantastic by the way the the episode was great yeah i was i've I've always been interested in telling stories that take place on the fringes of hollywood i've done that a few times i I find it such a melancholy place and also it's sort of personal when i was starting out I, i was on the fringes of hollywood trying to hustle my way in there and my son spends time on the fringes of hollywood too so and i always find it so melancholy i really want you know it's a digression years ago I was I was in LA talking to a really successful screenwriter and I said to him that that morning I'd been in a cafe and everybody like in the cafe was writing their screenplays on spec and I said don't you just feel don't you just feel for them like you, you know you're such a success and they're just trying to make it and it's so sad you just really want everybody to be successful and you know don't you really feel for them and and he said no the reason why I don't feel for them is because I hate them la la is like yeah if there's melancholy it's also just coated with envy yeah i know right um but then my son told me something about how a friend of his would lie about where he is on instagram he'd say he's on the warner brothers lot when he's not mm-hmm. you know he'll he'll put his um geo thing to somewhere where he's not and i just found all that stuff desperately sad i'm always thinking mm-hmm. uh there but for the grace of god go i you know, the making it and not making it are, there's a very thin line between making mm-hmm. it and not making it. And so I always really feel for people in Hollywood trying to make it. Um, and I think that was the thing that first interested me about Isaac Happy. So I was making a show about, you know, Things Fell Apart is a series of eight stories about tales from the history of the culture wars. But by the time we get to episodes seven and eight, we're kind of up to the present day. So I wanted to tell a QAnon story specifically because I told a satanic panic story earlier in the series. Uh, so I put those two things together and that's why I wanted to tell um, Isaac's story. But at, at the beginning of QAnon, you, you guys were way ahead of me. Part of the reason why I've listened to, you know, a number of your episodes is because I was I was really behind on QAnon. When it started, I thought, well, I'm not interested in that because I did that in the 90s and I never want to repeat myself. Um, but then when QAnon just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, I, I, I regretted uh, that lack of curiosity. So I... So I Spent quite a lot of time catching up, um, but but it's for all of those reasons why I wanted to do the Isaac Happy story. It's funny that you mentioned the kind of thin line between making it and not making it, because I feel like he kind of was lost in that liminal space, you know? I mean, he was... Mm-hmm. On the edge of larger fame, but always plagued by uh, his you know, kind of more conspiratorial beliefs. But if you, you know, as you do, and by the way, a, a really, really great episode of the show, you trace back the beginning when he was just hopeful and he was, you know, subjected uh, to a conspiracy that is more credible, which is that the Democratic Party conspired to block Bernie from being the nominee in 2016. And so you kind of mentioned in your show, well, that's not so irrational. And the, the great disappointment and this this kind of vision that he had of this conspiracy apparently seems to have just been pushed him over the edge and 
later he ends up in in Pizzagate. I mean, do you think that that this kind of conspiring in powerful circles, when people realize it and see it, that that it can then lead them, uh, you know, uh, in the military or major political parties, that it can then be a catalyst for people descending into darker stuff like Pizzagate or QAnon? Yeah, I, I think he was conspiratorial minded anyway. But I think, um, and I sometimes I think just some people are. I've spent my whole life wondering why some people believe things that are clearly not true. But maybe the, you know, sort of bleak fact is, is that some people are just born that way. Um, and in fact, with Isaac Cappy, it's only a 30-minute episode, like like they all are, this new series. But I, I, I you know, there's an easily a feature-length episode to tell about Isaac Cappy. And, and in fact, somebody that I spoke to who's not in the show, somebody who was close to Isaac, basically said that he was born that way. But... Yes, the Bernie, I was really surprised and didn't anticipate that one of Isaac's best friends said to me that Bernie being ousted was a big push uh, in, in a more conspiratorial direction for Isaac Capia. Didn't anticipate that at all, but it really makes sense. And and I assume that there's a whole bunch, you know, that there are, that Isaac isn't the only Bernie fan that you'll find in, in Q, right? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it is something that we see recurring. Obviously, these people shift allegiance very strongly once they get into the new conspiracy theories. But we've seen that great disappointments combined with real kind of conspiring that's that's quite visible to the public can push people uh, into a much darker places, much less hope. And they want to burn the system down at that point because yeah. they, you know, I th Bernie wasn't an expression of wanting to burn the system down. It was more for them, I think, a last ditch hope. Like, do we have any control over the way things are going? And then, you know, by the time it's two years later and by the time they've gotten into the Pizzagate stuff, they are, you know, rabidly calling for uh, authoritarianism that is, you know, kind of diametrically opposed to any of Bernie's values. And that's because, you know, people snap. People snap. I feel like a lot of people are already on the edge of snapping, of feeling, I'm, you know, like I'm totally powerless in the face of this Byzantine and all-powerful and ever-unifying and scrutinizing uh, system. So yeah, it is that, I see that tragedy. And, um, but I do, you know, I do hear people say, well, you see, so then there's an equivalent or whatever, you know, like this means this. And that's where I, I find that there's not actually that much of a connection. It's just that great disappointments, especially to do with with uh, uh, having you know feeling like you have any political uh, volition or power in, in the country, that can that can really shatter you, especially if you were brought up thinking you know your vote counts and this is a fair and democratic system. Yeah, as you say, disappointment. You know the loneliness in LA can seep into your bones. It really can. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. These spectral figures hiking. Griffith Park every day. I, I should say, I'm saying this from, from a position of loving LA. I'm, I would live there in a minute. Like I, like like many Brits, I, I totally romanticise LA and think it's an incredible place. But it's also, if things aren't going right for you there, it can be a like the loneliest place I've ever been to, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can we get a fact check on that, Jake? Uh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so loneliness also, I think, um, being attacked, being criticised. None of this, by the way, is is in any way, like, I think as, as my documentary shows and as you know and you will have said too about Isaac Cappy, there's a, he did a bunch of things that, that you can't excuse, but you can um, try and understand. Yeah. And, and I think um, another, so there was the loneliness, but also just in general, if, you, if you're prone to narcissism and you start getting criticised, that seems to be something mm -hmm. that can really 
put, put a person over the edge. Yeah, one thing I really loved in the episode is, you know, you kind of looked at his tenuous grip on reality because he, he had fallen in with a new crowd in Hollywood. Some of them were kind of the sons and daughters of famous people. Some of them were, you know, screenwriters or directors or actors. And so he, he starts to fall in with these people and he aspires to become famous to make it. And then he has this very crucial night that you explored uh, where he explains to his friends that he believes essentially in Pizzagate. Um, and this, this couple of close friends in, in these kind of Hollywood circles, they basically start to put on an act and they pretend, oh yeah, it's real and we're holding a child in a secret room in this house. And somehow they let him walk away without ever clarifying. It's not clear what happened there, but could you kind of explain yeah, that? Yeah, well, well, what you said, um, the, the Isaac confided um, in these two friends who were, you know, successful Hollywood people uh, that he believes in Pizzagate. And yeah, they, they put on an act. They said, we have a child, it's all true. And I've got a bookcase. And if you come with me and we press a button on the bookcase, then there's a dungeon and there's a child. And if you rape the child, then you will be a successful person in Hollywood. And yes, for some reason, Isaac left that night without any sort of closure without without them saying presumably like without them saying we're, we're fucking with you because he certainly left that house believing that that they were that they weren't kidding and, and he and he was haunted by it yeah and to me that is an insanely cruel act it's uh, well it's definitely a prank gone wrong maybe they didn't know i mean i've never spoken <laughs> yeah. i didn't I, I i emailed one of them and didn't didn't get a reply so i've never spoken to them and i've never had their point of view so this is like totally conjecture right um, of course but yeah, maybe they didn't know just how deep yeah. he was. Yeah, I mean, to... it sounds like, you know, whenever whenever there's like a baseless conspiracy theories about some kind of industry or whatever, maybe this is the kind of ways that they joke about it themselves. And these friends of Cappy's mis mistook Cappy as someone who uh, who, who was in on the joke. Um, but, um, you know, unfortunately, mm. apparently, like you mentioned, these people were like actors. So they put on a good performance of acting like Pizzagate is real, which is, a, I think, an important lesson. If you are successful in Hollywood, do not joke about Pizzagate being real because this will only make people believe that it is in fact real. They'll interpret it as a confession rather than a put on. Yes. Oh, yeah. And also, like you said, people are lonely and they're sucking in information in Hollywood. This is a place of, you know, hungry ghosts and don't, don't feed the ghosts trash. Yes. I Just... agree. <laughs> I, I've made that mistake from time to time after Charlottesville. I, because I'm Jewish, I, you know, I, sent a couple of unwise tweets about how I'm going to replace people. But then I sort of quickly realized, actually, that's that's not something right. that you should be fucking with. So I, I agree with you. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. So, you know, after this, he has this kind of phase where he starts to tell his loved ones that he's sorry, that he's done dark things, actually, and that he should have looked inside himself. And, you know, however it happens, he's supposed to be visiting his parents and on a bridge in Arizona on his way from California to his parents' place, he ends up uh, at 7.30 a.m. sitting on this, the edge of this bridge. So could you tell us kind of what happened that, that day? Yeah, so, so Isaac's parents... Uh, and friends are pretty convinced because the official line is that it was it was it was suicide. Um, they're convinced that it wasn't. Um, of course, there's a third narrative, which is that it was murder, which is what so many QAnon people want to want to believe. But what the most 
um, plausible story, I think, is is the parents' story, which is that he was on his way home to see them. This was Mother's Day. He was going to give... He was depressed. Um, but he's on his way to see his parents. It's early in the morning. He's sitting on a on a bridge with his back to the drop, um, taking in the morning light. Looks like he's, you know, just enjoying the, the sunrise. Some guys come over, drive towards him, think he's about to kill himself, try and save him, drive up really fast. And he doesn't see them and then he sees them and he topples backwards. Or if you believe the official report, you know, push, pushes himself backwards right. and, and dies. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what his his parents believed, that it was an accidental death and not suicide. Yeah. Um, yeah, very tragic. Something I didn't have time to put into the show, but I'd like to ask you guys, was this dead, men, dead man switch thing? Did you know about this? Yeah, the idea that he had kind of put aside some documents that would be released in case of his death. And they were released, and it was this absurd video in a bathhouse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I did, I did hear about that. Um, yeah, there's nothing to that. There, that happens every time a major conspiracist dies. When uh, Robert David Steele, major QAnon promoter, promoter of Adrenochrome, the ex-CIA, uh, died, there was uh, lots of rumors on Twitter that there was a dead man switch releasing uh, previously unseen emails, which is uh, mm. kind of kind of ridiculous. But like, yeah, this the same kind of thing happens uh, very frequently whenever a conspiracist dies. I mean, the same thing happened with um, what's his name, the antivirus guy, uh, John John McAfee, John McAfee. McAfee, same McAfee, thing. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. When right, John yes. McAfee died, the exact same thing. People claim like, oh, there's going to be a dead man switch and there's going to release all this secret information. I mean, it's just like a, a common trope whenever a major conspiracist dies. There was this also thing with, with John McAfee where after he had passed away, uh, somebody posted a large queue to his Instagram account, right, right. Travis? That's right. Someone yeah. uh, someone with access <laughs> to McAfee's account posted a large queue after he died. So that was a lot of fun. Well, now I'm interested though, John. Tell me, was there anything in interesting in that video or I mean what what do you make of it well so it was a short video when I first saw it without any context I was like what the fuck is this um without any context it's a it's a startling video it's very short and it's these uh very young girls um wearing kind of uh Togas, like like something. Oh, wait a second. Yeah, yeah. That is actually just footage that has nothing to do with him. That is an image that's been passed around to talk about child sacrifice forever. Right, because it turns bizarre, out to be a yeah. spa in Turkey or something. And it's some kids yeah. pl- playing dressing up. Um, yeah. Yep. Right. What I couldn't figure out, and I don't know if you know, is that particular video is is considered to be the Isaac Cappy dead man switch, but is it just a bullshit thing that has no relation whatsoever? That, as far as I know, that video was floating around before Isaac Cappy passed away. That is a video that gets floated around or screen capped and put into memes uh, about like, you know, child sacrifice and supposed proof. Uh, yeah, so I've seen that okay. passed around a lot without his name. Now, I might be wrong and we might have to cut this entire part out, but <laughs> we'll see, we'll right. see. But yeah, Got no, I, I wouldn't give that one too much credibility. I don't think he shot that video. I think it has nothing to do with him. Whether it was introduced after his death or not is kind of irrelevant to the point that, yeah, that is not yeah. Isaac Cappy's video. Isaac Cappy isn't in it. There's nothing about it. Yeah, the, the, the only um, sort of salient thing was whether or not that video was d- directly linked to, to Cappy's death, but if, but clearly it sounds like it wasn't. Oh, because it's clearly bogus. Like, whatever, it, yeah. wherever it came from and whenever it first came out, sure. it's, it's bogus and it's been debunked. But I 
I just didn't know whether it really was the thing that Cappy was referring to when he was yeah, talking about yeah. Dead Man Switch. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah, because there is video. I mean, he was so paranoid and clearly mentally ill in those last few days and weeks and the, all the videos he made were very worrying. You know, um, he seems emaciated. He seems depressed. And yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's very clear, I think, to anybody except the QAnon people who just wanted to use him at that point, that, that this is a man who was very vulnerable and uh, was going through a really difficult part of his life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, after that, this QAnon lawyer, Lynn Wood, who we've covered quite a bit on the show, he pops up a year and a half after uh, Cappy's death. Can you just tell us a bit about what happened there? Sure. Um so Linwood, this is a week before January the 6th. Linwood just does a, a tweet storm about how um, there's evidence that John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, and I think some other, and some various election officials who were controversial at the time because they wanted the election to go unchallenged, controversial in key circles, were being kidnapped. Uh, John Roberts, there's a, there was a video of Chief Justice John Roberts being forced to kill a child and Isaac Cappy was given this evidence and he was going to give it to Trump but was murdered before he could. So Linwood was posting all of this stuff in the days before the January 6th insurrection which was so surprising to me because when I first heard of Linwood it was for very um, yeah, Linwood uh, had defended Richard Jewell. Um, uh, mm -hmm. He defended the Covington, Kentucky kid, which d turned out to be a miscarriage of justice. So he'd done some good work, Linwood, and then suddenly something happened. He just, um, as Jonathan Swan said to me, the the Australian uh, political columnist said, well, they're all swimming in the same mire. They're all reading the same stuff online. You know, you would think that this incredibly important lawyer would have proper information at his fingertips, but no, he's reading the same shit that everybody else is reading and they're all they're all succumbing to it together. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, kind of point that we can depart from, which is the idea that, you know, at, th at this stage, you know, it's like, I can't believe Linwood did that. I mean, Donald Trump was retweeting Q. Mm. Donald Trump basically, you know... <laughs> Yeah, at least he failed to turn on Q. So there's this irrationality at the top that one would assume doesn't exist in a system like this. And you kind of covered a really interesting aspect of this in the the men who stare at goats and the documentary that came out of it. And it explores this kind of new age irrational idea cloud that seemed to float into high level uh, American military and intelligence agencies thinking. Yeah. And there's all these project names that are incredible, like Project Jedi, Project Stargate, yes, and the the First Earth Battalion. I mean. These, these, this is fascinating. So tell us broadly about, you know, irrationality at high levels and how new age irrationality, you know, has, has kind of been a historical thing. Yeah, absolutely. I should say I give Trump um, less credit for being credulous because there was a really interesting quote of Trump's when he was talking about Sidney Powell, uh, another sort of Linwood partner in crime, where he said like Sidney Powell's on the phone and he's got her on speakerphone. And she's like ranting about this and that, about Dominion and this and that. And Trump puts her on mute and he's laughing and he's saying she's <laughs> crazy. And then he says, mm -hmm. but sometimes maybe you need a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, so for me, that says Trump knew exactly what he was doing when he was utilising the craziness of the people around him, like Linwood and, and Sidney Powell. Um, unlike, I'd say, the people from the First Earth Battalion, 
uh, yes. back in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at, at Linwood and Powell, and they were kind of like these berserker heretics, like sent to self-immolate, you know? Right. Yeah, Trump's interesting, because at the same time, he's, he seems to believe a lot of this stuff, but also understand how it can be used politically. And, and that feels much more cynical and much more rational. When Trump says she's crazy, Sometimes, but sometimes you need a little crazy. This is in the days before January the 6th. Um, you've got to think, well, that's ra- that's a rational act. Yeah, I mean, it, he was tired of Pence, who, who gave him the actual rational response and said, no, actually, I won't play along. So I think he was looking, you know, for, for just people who are willing to destroy their own reputations and, like, sacrifice themselves to the great uh, Moloch mouth of Trump, you know? Yeah. So after Bohemian Grove, after my Bohemian Grove adventure, I, I was giving a talk in Ireland, and somebody said to me, look, I know what you think of Bohemian Grove. I know what Alex Jones thinks of Bohemian Grove. This was during the Q&A. Um, but what, what did the Grovers themselves think of it? And I thought that's such an interesting question. And I said, like, I, I, I think I was the only sane person in the entire Redwood Forest. Like, everyone was taking this ritual <laughs> seriously except for me. And, it was, and that's what gave me the idea to write The Men Who Stare at Goats. Like, OK, I've done irrationality at the fringes of society, but now I want to try and tell a story about irrationality at the heart of power. And we were flailing around forever. Um, we wasted like two years trying to find the story. And then suddenly, then I was, I was talking, I was in Las Vegas and I was talking to a guy called Ray Hyman, who's a famous sceptic. And, and we knew there was a tiny bit of this uh, iceberg that was, that was above the surface. And it was this, that there'd been this uh, thing called Project Stargate, which was remote viewing. Military people were told to sit in a room and try and be psychic. And they were in there for years. And because they were black ops, they had no coffee machine. It's like being black ops tends to be a real problem because you've got no budget. So you have to bring your own coffee into work. And when Mm -hmm. your building needs maintenance, there's no maintenance budget because you're black ops. So, um, So they were just getting more and more kind of miserable inside this room at Fort Meade trying to be psychic having to bring their own coffee into work which they're very resentful about uh and um and then they and then they kept this team of psychic spies were being passed one minute they're with military intelligence one minute they're with um special forces one minute they're with uh uh the CIA for funding and when it goes back to the CIA there were some people in the CIA who thought like oh um we don't want to do this anymore we don't want team of soldiers trying to be psychic so they brought in this guy Ray Hyman to assess it knowing that he would assess it skeptically and it would be closed down which is exactly what happened so I met Ray Hyman and I I didn't want to do a remote viewing story because a a good journalist called Jim Schnabel had already written a book about it Uh, so I didn't want to like do somebody else's story but when I was with Ray Hyman I said to him you know when when you were there assessing these psychic soldiers did you happen to notice anything else happening and his eyes like lit up And he told me the stuff that he'd never really told anyone before, that there was a lieutenant colonel who was trying to train his soldiers to fast for months at a time. And and there was a a general who thought he could burst clouds just by pointing at them. And this was General Stubblebine. So suddenly I had a couple of names and it turned out that General Stubblebine wasn't only trying to burst clouds. This was a two-star general with 16,000 soldiers under his command, but was also trying to walk through his wall um, at Arlington because the atom is made up 
mostly of space and the human body and the wall are both made up mostly of atoms. Like, clearly, the, the, mm-hmm. the problem here is the word mostly. Because <laughs> uh, he'd like, you know, literally try yeah. to walk through his wall and would just like bump his nose. And then I'd, I'd learned more that they were trying to kill goats just by staring at them. Mm-hmm. Um, this was... <laughs> being done at special forces at Fort Bragg. <laughs> I, 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 and one guy had actually managed to do it. A man called Guy Savelli had managed to kill a goat just by staring at it. And I yeah. said, I said, you know. This is great. But the guy said, but, but the problem is that um, his heart got damaged in the process. Uh, right. And I was like, what was the goat psychically fighting back? And he was like, no, no, no. It's what's known <laughs> in paranormal circles as sympathetic injury. So suddenly this whole uh, secret stuff killing goats by staring at them, trying to walk through walls, all of the shit that nobody knew anything about was just open to me. So that's that's how I ended up writing that book. Yeah, I love the kind of tiny uh, subsection of the story where you explore that they started with dogs, but nobody wanted to do that to dogs. <laughs> yeah. And they switched to goats. <laughs> right, so they switched to goats. It was determined yeah. by an animal psychologist that people find it hard to form an emotional bond with a goat. Or harder. I think it, I think the reality is that dogs have really strong psychic defenses, and they found that out very early and said, "No, you know, we need we need a more vulnerable target like a goat." <laughs> All right. I, I met the goat starer, Guy Savelli. Um, they were very, they were filming me. I, I met him in Ohio near Cleveland, and they were filming me the whole time. And they finally confessed to me that the reason why they were filming me was in case I was Al-Qaeda and just pretending to be a journalist. Right, uh, right. And uh, I think the moment that they realised that I wasn't Al-Qaeda was when Guy Savelli told me that his daughter was in the chorus of the movie Chicago as one of the dancers. And I just sort of screeched, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I love Catherine Zeta-Jones. And I, they all kind of relaxed. <laughs> I think they probably thought even a deep cover uh, Al-Qaeda operative wouldn't yeah. think to go that effeminate. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, you were back undercover. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I, I, you know, I can't help but wonder, you know, that there's like this recent rash of red pilled New Age influencers that worship the military, and uh, you know, the they love uh, the intelligence agencies, or at least some of them. They pick the good ones and bad ones. But you know, these woo ideas, I mean, they've been seeping into uh, you know places of power for a long time from places that are sometimes as innocuous as like the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. Like my friend was like, you should go there. You know, great meditation. It's a bit expensive, but like you can be nude in the hot tub, like. Uh, right under the rocks like you know and then years later I see it appear at the end of Mad Men and I start to understand that the Esalen Institute was deeply involved uh, with you know intelligence and high level uh, military and stuff like that so yeah tell me like what do you think about the is there any connection there or is it just this unending yeah there's a literal connection I mean I I don't know if there's like at all a sort of conspiratorial connection but but the literal connection is that Jim Chadden who was like the, the main guy who was trying to make the US military more paranormal training soldiers in these paranormal ways he went on a fact-finding mission to come up with these ideas and and i'm sure the first place he went was esalen uh, because this was the early 70s just after vietnam and esalen you know at that point jane fonda was was going to esalen abby hoffman was going to esalen timothy leary the beatles yeah. uh mm-hmm. bruce springsteen um so it's no surprise that uh, that Jim Channon would end up at Esalen. But I don't think 
I think he probably went, to, my guess is that he went to Esalen, you know, went to the workshops, did a total encounter group, did all of this stuff. But it's not like there were people at Esalen who were saying, you need to take this back to the military. Like, I, I, I don't know if that happened, but I doubt that happened. I think just like, just like you would experience if you went to Esalen, that's what Chadden experienced. And then he took what he wanted back to the military and just adapted it in military ways. Yeah, which is very funny because, uh, you know, now we have this, you know, like Havana syndrome and whatever. And I think it's kind of representative of the fact that all of this ends up weaponized. You know, when you hung out with these guys, they all wanted to twist your fingers, show how they could psychically <laughs> knock you out. Like yeah. it's, it all ends in like this brutish <laughs> kind of boring violence. Yeah. And I, it seems like they brought, you know, some of the drawings, oh, you'll carry a baby goat into into battle uh, uh, or, 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 you know, you're going to have a speaker that, that plays soothing tones uh, to the enemy. And those ideas are very quickly stripped down to like, oh no, I'm going to explode your brain yeah. with my mind. So what do you think about, you know, this this phenomenon well um so years later um when musical torture was being used in guantanamo and abu Ghraib and so on um i i was curious like is is there a path that led from music being used to pacify the enemy on the battlefield in the first earth battalion in the 70s to music being used as an interrogation technique um in the war on terror and you know it feels like there is a a, a, a jagged, circuitous path that takes you from, from one to the other. Some of the same individuals were involved. Um, so people who were fans of Jim Channon back in the 70s were involved in coming up with these new out-of-the-box ways to interrogate people 40 years later. So there were actual individuals who can connect the two events. Um, but yeah, the thing that got me interested was this guy at Guantanamo. It was, it was either Guantanamo or somewhere else. It might have been Al-Qaim, which was another place up in northern Iraq, was saying that, well, his story was that he was taken into a room and played a CD of covers of Fleetwood Mac songs at normal volume. So I'm like, okay. what the fuck was that all about? And he was like, <laughs> I have no idea. So were they embedding? Given that they were using music to, to fuck with people's brains at the same time because people were being mm -hmm. blasted with Metallica, Barney the yeah. Purple Dinosaur, whatever. So we yep. know that music was used in the interrogation arena. Were they trying some weird shit out with him that, that underneath these Fleetwood Mac songs was subliminal messages or something like I, I, yeah. I have no idea but it's not it's not impossible I mean in Al-Qaim they were putting them in shipping containers and blasting the music uh, into the container and the, the people are emaciated and they've clearly been kind of tortured and then they were also flashing lights on and off into the container yes. so I mean you see the end result and it's it doesn't feel much like a listening uh, session to Fleetwood Mac at regular no. volume <laughs> that's a very that's a much more brutish way of using music yeah. to fuck with people's heads and that uh, that was undoubtedly happening not just there but at Abu Ghraib at Guantanamo what I don't know is whether they were also taking the opportunity to try and use sounds in different ways because there's a big history of 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 the yes. military doing that stuff there's a place right can't remember, some, somewhere in Virginia there's a place that's run by some of the old remote viewers where they do this thing called hemi-syncing where they try and uh, align your left and right hemisphere using sounds so sounds to change the way your brain works is definitely something that's been that, that's historically used in the military so you have these kind of yeah you know stuff that that is written in the documents and you know employed by the military and then you have theories about foreign sonic weapons 
uh, coming up with Havana Syndrome, mm. which when I when I watched uh, you know uh, your work, I was just thinking, oh my god, it's it's just an inversion of that, right? The enemy is actually doing this stuff, which by the way we haven't really proven works, but they're doing it. They have a secret weapon, and we are catching this specific syndrome from it. So I mean, what did you make of, of Havana Syndrome? To be completely honest, I've been so busy this year making things fell apart that even though obviously I've seen articles about the Havana Syndrome, I haven't really done any proper research you probably know more about it than i do i mean has anything been proven yet uh well we have a we have a good episode on it and no in in the rationalist chain there's multiple breaks uh one is proof that this weapon exists second proof that it was used by the Cubans or the Russians or the Chinese, then proof that the syndrome exists, then proof that the syndrome is connected to this said attack. Uh-huh. I mean, there's lots of chains that are just totally shattered. There's no there's yeah. no actual connective tissue there, unfortunately. Uh, but there is a bill passed by Congress now, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I have a feeling that, uh, you know, this kind of pilling or, or woo thinking has just, mm. uh, it's just become, I mean, it, maybe it always was, but it is endemic. Yes, I think they would say, the military people would say, and in fact did say to me, that the way that they justify it is if the military, it's part of the military's remit to try out-of-the-box stuff, um, to blue sky thing. And they would point to things like the high-visibility jacket, which was apparently an early military endeavour. Like, that was kind of created inside the military and look at how it's changed the world. The taser, I think, has a similar lineage. Mm-hmm. So they would say, look, we have tried um, this out-of-the-box stuff and, and there's occasions when it's worked. They will also say there's stories about women, you know, a kid gets, a baby gets trapped underneath the car and the parent can summon up enough energy to lift up the car and get the, yeah. you know, we can do these superhuman things when needs be. So, so they would argue, uh, and I have some sympathy for the argument that, you know, given all of that, then maybe we should try and kill goats just by staring at them. Like, what's the problem? Yeah. I mean, they do very much qualify themselves as warrior monks, and they see themselves as like an integral part of the structure. And apparently they've been giving high-level presentations at the very least. So you do have, you know, basically high-level military sitting in a room doing mantras. Yes, that that definitely happened. And yeah, they were very, I mean, people, in Iraq, there was a 1st Earth Battalion. There was an informal 1st Earth Battalion during the Iraq War. It was informal. It was just a fan of Jim Channon's, and they were there in Iraq, and I think this guy was getting them to do yoga every morning and and so on uh, and I was invited but the idea of of being embedded in Iraq in the mid 2000s was just I just didn't want, I didn't want to go yeah even with the yoga even with it's the yoga shame. my wife was like <laughs> I let you do anything but don't go to Iraq don't go to the hottest place on earth currently yeah, yeah. um well, yeah, I wanted to to speak uh, a, a little bit about this approach you have, this faux naïf approach, you know, in which you sort of play along with people instead of being confrontational. And then you have also a certain empathy towards your subjects that's consistent uh, across your work. Could you tell us a bit about the reasoning behind that and and what kind of situations it's probably gotten, you know, you into? Sure. I, you know, of everything you just said, I'm, I'm, I never, in, in, other than when I was really young and starting out, like, I don't believe my naivety is faux. I think it's pretty genuine. I think okay, I, fair, I, fair, um, fair. I have a genuine curiosity for the stories that I do. And I just go in with a lot of enthusiasm and curiosity. And that can come over as as faux naivety or naivety. But really what it is, is curiosity. It's just I've, I've left any ideology that I have, I've, I've just left at home. Unless it's somebody truly terrible. I made a documentary years ago in about 2001 about a pedophile gang in, well... Um, 
a bunch of musicians and club promoters and so on where there was an awful lot of underage sex. And some of the people that I met there were just so repulsive and so hideous. I just... But most, you know, but most of the time, if I'm with somebody that I'm really curious about, Alex Jones or, or you know, whoever it is, uh, it's, I'm, I'm curious. I, I feel weirdly privileged that I get to live a life where I can sneak into Bohemian Grove and get chased by the Bilderberg group or, or whatever. It, it feels like a privilege. And, and, and as I said earlier, I only really regain my rationality when I've gathered all the material and I'm back home trying to shape it. And that's where I think it becomes very important that you don't fuck up. Like, right. Um, but that only happens right at the end of the process. I, I, I very rarely, when I'm like on an adventure, think, okay, this is how I'm going to make this work structurally. I don't even bother thinking about that till I get home. And... Uh, an empathy I think it's just as you get older and you accumulate more and more baggage and you know things go wrong in your own life and you have difficulties and you, you no longer feel that immortality that the young feel you feel fallible and mortal and I just think it's much easier to be empathetic to people when you've had your own batterings and uh and so I do and, and so I, you know so I try and navigate that stuff, curiosity and empathy, but also a responsibility if you're dealing with people who do bad things, mm-hmm. a responsibility to not let them off the hook. Right, right. And, but do you think, for example, in 2022, you could embed with Alex Jones and, and go into, you know, I mean, I, he's much more famous now, but do, don't you think there would be some, at least some accusations of like, oh, you're enabling or you're platforming someone like him? Yeah. Um, and... You know, I just have mixed feelings about the whole platforming thing. I, I have mixed feelings about it. So when Alex Jones was deplatformed from, you know, from from social media, I didn't feel this sort of free speech ab- absolutist rage. Um, where I thought, you know, this is outrageous that somebody is having their voice taken away from them. Like, I didn't feel that way. I felt that it was appropriate given everything that had happened with Sandy Hook, for, for Alex to be deplatformed. Plus, it was private companies who could do what they want. Plus, every time Alex goes on a rant against me now, instead of getting 100 emails, I get, like, one email because <laughs> deplatforming works. But at the same time, when I was doing Alex back in the 90s, if anybody had said, why are you giving this person the oxygen? I'd have said, you know, because I'm against deplatforming. We need to... So I can see that there's probably a slight... Um, imbalance there but I think my basic view is if you're dealing with something responsibly you know I worry about the whole deplatforming slippery slope that you see on university campuses that somebody gets deplatformed who you think well you know I can understand why that person wasn't welcome in Oberlin but then you know the next person you think oh you know so it's it's complicated I I, I don't feel that the tech companies were wrong to deplatform people like Alex. But at the same time, I'm pretty resistant to deplatforming, I suppose is my position. Fair. Um, so yeah, your your latest show, uh, once again, is called Things Fell Apart. And it's going to be available on all podcasting platforms on January 25th. For now, it's mostly for people in the UK, as far as I can tell, right? Yes, it, it's, uh, it's a BBC show. So mm-hmm. it, it's mostly geared towards British people for now. But on January the 25th, it's going to be released everywhere to the whole world. Uh, thank heavens. And I think there's a few episodes that will probably appeal to listeners of 
QAnon Anonymous. Uh, there's the Satanic Panic episode and there's the Isaac Cappy episode. Yeah. There's also, I think, some really moving episodes, particularly one, particularly episode three, which is about the, the day that Tammy Faye Baker interviewed Steve Peters, a gay pastor with AIDS, and the, the, the ripples of this meeting between these two people across enemy lines is is so moving. Yeah, because you look, uh, there, there's a pretty fascinating look at how abortion was really not a major conservative Christian issue in America. And through a series of really weird and tenuous circumstances, it became the ma- you know one of the main ones. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a 17-year-old kid dreaming of making Fellini-type Hollywood movies uh, in, in the Swiss Alps. There was a direct line between this kid's Hollywood ambitions and decades later, to the murder of abortion doctors in New York. I think that's what I try and do with, with this, with the whole series. Things fell apart. They, they start in very odd places, and when you begin to realize, oh my God, this is where it's going. It's it, it always feels quite revelatory. I think. Is there anything else uh, you know that that uh, you you had to leave out of the show, but you think uh, might be interesting before we let you go? Well, I had to leave a bunch of things out of the Isaac Cappy episode. Um, there was, I mean, one of the first things you discover when you um, Google Isaac Cappy is that he was accused of of choking um, Paris Jackson at one of the parties. But it's disputed by some of Isaac's loved ones. There's certain aspects of that story that that are disputed. And I realised really quickly that I either do the whole thing, like do the choking incident and properly research it and investigate it and tell the counter story, or or I don't put it in at all. And given the, the, the wide scope of that particular story, I decided I just had to leave that out for, for that reason. If I ever make a 90-minute story about Isaac Cappy, I'd certainly go there. Yeah, that, that kind of connects uh, with that the Jabberwock uh, episode uh, of, of This American Life, where you had to profoundly explore a, a series of basically fist fights in Texas to understand <laughs> whether Alex Jones was lying about being a coward or whether he had really found, you know, the cops doing something something dirty. And the whole story is fascinating because you get to find out that, yeah, Alex Jones loved to like dye his tongue blue and k- tell people he was Satan in high school mm. um, and just scare people. You know, he just enjoyed that. Uh, anyway, it's very, very fascinating. And and I just want to say thanks for all your work. And people should definitely check out the series. It's great. It's um, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, you know, thanks for letting us uh, get a little sneak peek. So check that out on January 25th, folks. And thank you so much for joining us, John. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another Another episode of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribe for five bucks a month to get a whole second episode every single week, plus access to our entire archive of premium episodes. When you subscribe, you help us stay advertising free and editorially independent. For everything else, we have a website, QAnonAnonymous.com. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto-cue. And now, a Christmas message from Her Majesty, the Queen. As we all prepare to end the year 2021, I want us to reflect on my late husband, Prince Philip, eugenicist and human exterminist, and wish you all a horrible death. On this Christmas, remember that Christ was crucified upside down and that Satan rules Britannia. I hope you all will die a miserable death from a deadly virus, the reincarnation of Prince Philip. 
Heil Hitler. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got some bad news for you. The Queen of England and Bill Gates say Christmas is canceled. And Fauci said, don't have your family over unless they've had the poison vaccine. I'm going to follow the orders of the Queen of England and I'm not going to see my family. I'm going to live in fear and drink their Kool-Aid. Oh, but I forgot the world's waking up and saying, burn in hell, Queen Elizabeth. Burn in hell, Bill Gates. We know who you are, you monstrous killers. We know Prince Philip wanted to come back as a virus to kill 80% of humanity. And we hope that you will lead by example instead of trying to kill all of us. We hope that you this Christmas give everybody the great gift of leaving the planet. Burn in hell. And to everyone else that's pro-human and believes in a pro-human future, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.